I thank you, Father, for just your heart, God. Lord, that you didn't waste space, God. In these 66 books, God, there is not one word that isn't there by your direction. And so, God, today, and to, or tonight, I should say, Lord, as we dig in, as we look at this next chapter, God, and we, we glean out of it those things you want us to glean, Father, would you open our eyes fresh and new, God, to just your sovereignty? Because, God, in all things, Lord God, in everything that we're looking at, Lord, I stand in such awe that we can read this far back in history, Lord, and you are already speaking about Jesus. God, you have been. Father, you're, you're laying the future out literally within historical context, Lord, hundreds of years sometimes and thousands of years, Lord, out from where... Uh, where it was written, God, you are amazing. You are sovereign, God. We can trust you. And so, Lord, as we study tonight, open our eyes to that, Lord. Father, help us to put our life situations that we're in right now and look at them in light of the fact that you are a sovereign God and that you hold all things in your mighty, mighty hands. And we have nothing to fear. God, have your way tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So you guys, last week, you remember, we looked at chapter 16 and we examined the people of Judah basically from the moral perspective, right? We looked at like how they had idolatry all throughout and they were like, not only just like, I mean, it was a pretty rough chapter, wasn't it? We saw how God saw them. They were harlots. They were just selling themselves. And God was like, you're not even a smart harlot. You're a stupid harlot. You're, you're paying people to do the harlotry to you. And so the, he was like really ragging on him and kind of getting them down, right? Getting down on him and saying, man, you're, the way you were isn't good. The way you are being isn't good. Well, this week we're going to examine Judah from the political perspective. We're going to look at what God's going to say about like, not only are you doing this as a people just in your idolatry and all the stuff you're doing, but even politically, you guys are messed up. And so tonight we're going to be looking at that. This week, when we look at this, I, I want to see this. They, they had, you know, Jeremiah. They had Ezekiel. They had Daniel all telling them, hey, this is what the Lord's saying. And yet we're going to see that they just were like, yeah, no, we're not going to buy that. That's not what we're going to believe. We're going to make sure that we go about things uh, in the way that's going to help us the most, that's going to benefit us the most, that that's probably makes the most sense to us, God. I mean, you might be God and you might be sovereign, but we're way smarter than you. And so, I don't know about you all, but don't we do that sometimes? So you guys, here's God, again, telling them before it happens, hey, stop what you're doing and repent instead of going your own arrogant way. And so let's dig in. Chapter 17 Verse one says this, and the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, pose a riddle and speak a parable to the house of Israel. So God tells Ezekiel, hey, go to the people this time and tell them a riddle. Give them another parable. Give them a parable. And you guys, riddles, we all know, right? A riddle is not necessarily what we think of as a parable because a riddle requires explanation, right? A riddle is something that you're saying with the expectation that some people aren't going to get the riddle and you're going to have to explain 
the answer to it, right? It's not meant to be fully understood right away. A parable, you guys, is, is basically used, and, and I want you to think of parables differently. Jesus used parables a lot. And what were they usually? Well, they were usually used to teach a moral lesson, but who did they have? They usually have more human characters for the most part, right? Typically. And that's kind of what a parable is. The way this word, the reason that they chose that word is in the Hebrew, this word riddle and parable, it's kind of the same word. And it speaks to this basically type of allegory. And it's the Hebrew word masal. And it literally means superiority and mental action. Or a pithy metaphorical maxim. Say that fast three times. A pithy metaphorical maxim. In other words, it's something that's metaphorical, but it's a maxim, like it's the truth. It's an absolutely true thing that's being spoken to you. And it's pithy, which means it's a little short statement. It's like, here it is, figure it out, right? So this is not kind of a typical parable that we would think of when we think of parables of Jesus. This is kind of like more of a riddle. It's, it's kind of one of those things. So in the times of history, you guys, I found out as I was studying this this week, and I just thought this was crazy. In the times before, in this time of history, this type of riddle or parable was actually used to political ends. So kings, if they were like, you know what? Like it's winter time and you know, we don't really want to like go and have a big battle and lose a bunch of our people. We're not gonna do that. They would sometimes say, you know what we're gonna do? We're gonna pose riddles to one another and whoever loses is dead. <laughs> it was like trivial pursuit with a killer twist, right? It was like a... a you know, it was like a game on, on crack. It was crazy. So these two kings would come together and they would be like, pose riddles to each other. And whoever lost, they were like, you're dead. Whack. And they'd kill him and that was the end of it. And so that was kind of what this thing is. And why do I say all that? Well, there are many scholars, and I tend to believe this too, that believe that God was saying, hey, to Ezekiel, pose a riddle. Because what he's gonna do is he's trying to talk to the king who's in Judah at this moment, King Zedekiah. And he's saying to him, I'm posing this riddle to you. And if you get it wrong, you're dead. That's essentially what he was doing. And I, I believe that's what was happening there too. Some people don't believe that. So if you don't, that's fine. But as we read, you'll kind of understand and see that, that God makes it quite clear. Like, I already know your end, but I'm posing this to you so you get it, that this is a competition between you and I. And I don't know about you, but I don't want God to pose a riddle to me because I'm not going to win. <laughs> And a humble man would say, I'm done, God. Please, I forgive me, right? Repent. That's not what we see with Zedekiah. So Zedekiah, we're going to talk real quick about him. He was the vassal king in Judah. In other words, he was a fake leader. He was set up by Nebuchadnezzar and said, here, you be the guy. And we'll look at that a little bit later. But that's, that's who we're talking about here. So you guys ready? Here's the riddle. Verse 3. And say, thus says the Lord God, a great eagle with large wings and long pinions, full of feathers of various colors, came to Lebanon and took from the cedar, excuse me, the highest branch. He cropped off its topmost young twig and carried it to the land of trade. He set it in a city of merchants. Then he took some of the seed of the land and planted it in a fertile field. 
He placed it by abundant waters and set it like a willow tree. And it grew and became a spreading vine of low stature. Its branches turned toward him, but its roots were under it. So it became a vine, brought forth branches and put forth shoots. So here's the first half of this riddle. This eagle comes down with large wings, right? And they're multicolored feathers. It's this kind of beautiful picture of an eagle. And it came to Lebanon. And it took off the the top branch of the cedar. You guys remember Lebanon was known for their cedars, right? That's where all all of the stuff that Solomon built into the temple and even into his own palace was all made with the cedars of Lebanon. These things were notorious. They were well known. And so here, God's saying they went to Lebanon and they took the top branch. They took that little tiny part off the top. And then off of that, they plucked the topmost young twig and put it in the land of trade. Then it says he took some of the seed of the land and planted it in a fertile field, which gave it plenty of water, and it grew into a vine that was meh. It wasn't that great of a vine, right? It said it was of low stature. It was just kind of like growing across the ground. So it was like, it was whatever, but it had its roots underneath it. It wasn't like stretched so far out that it wasn't going to grow well. And so it was growing where it was planted and it was actually growing up good. It was pulling off, you know, other branches and then other things are coming off of that. So it was healthy, even though it was a, a vine of low stature. And so let's keep reading. Verse seven. But there was another great eagle with large wings and many feathers. And behold, this vine, this vine that had been planted, bent its roots towards him and stretched its branches towards him from the garden terrace where it had been planted that he might water it. It was planted in good soil with many waters to bring forth branches and bear fruit and become a majestic vine. Say, thus says the Lord God, will it thrive? Will he not pull up its roots, cut off its fruit and leave it to wither? All of its spring leaves will wither and no great power or many people will be needed to pluck it up by its roots. Behold, it is planted. Will it thrive? Will it not utterly utterly wither when the east wind touches it? It will wither in the garden terrace where it grew. So there's this second eagle that comes and has large wings and many feathers. The vine is growing It's getting better. It's not growing all that great, but it's still growing. It's doing okay. And it was given everything it needed by the first eagle to grow into a majestic vine. That's what he's saying. But what did it do? This new eagle came in. And I want you guys to notice, did did that new eagle do anything? No, it just came in, just showed up. But what did the vine do? It was like, oh man, you water me. You take care of me. And so it it started growing away from the garden terrace, away from its root system, and was like, you, you do this. You help me. You do it. You have, you have mercy on me. You, you put water on me. You make it grow. And then God's like, is it going to thrive? Is it going to thrive expecting this new eagle to care for it? It was set to survive and become a majestic vine under the first eagle, the one that cared enough to plant it the one that was like tending it. And instead it grew far, far away from where it was supposed to be to this new eagle and was like, oh, you know, I need, I need you to do all this. And the fact is, you guys, we see throughout this little riddle 
this second eagle showed zero interest. Zero interest in the, in the vine. There was nothing in there that said anything other than, here's this second eagle, and it has many feathers. That's the only thing we know about it. Do you guys see how ridiculous this is? Do you see, just look at it from the vine's perspective, do you see the ingratitude and the foolishness of this vine to bend its way to this second eagle that doesn't care about it when the first eagle's like, I'm taking care of you. Like, you're not great, but you're growing. And then the second eagle that has nothing to do with anything, it's like, you take care of me. And so then he's saying like, man, that first eagle's just gonna rip you up. He's going to rip up your roots because it's like, I wanted you to grow here. I wanted you to look pretty here. I wanted you to do what you were supposed to do here. And yet you're stretching yourself clear out across the desert. You're just doing whatever you want away from what I've asked you to do. And so he's like, it's not even going to take a lot of people. It's just going to be ripped up. You guys understand what's happening here yet? Well, if you do, you're good. If you don't, that's because it's a riddle. You're not supposed to. So the fact is, you guys, is that what this vine was doing by stretching itself out, by growing and being crazy and not doing the things it was supposed to do, God's saying, look, it's going to be an even easier destruction. It's going to be even easier to destroy you. So verse 11, let's keep reading. It's going to be the explanation here. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Say now to the rebellious house, do you not know what these things mean? Tell them, indeed, the king of Babylon went to Jerusalem and took its king and princes and led them with him to Babylon. And he took the king's offspring, made a covenant with him, and put him under oath. He also took away the mighty of the land, that the kingdom might be brought low and not lift itself up but that by keeping his covenant, it might stand. But he rebelled against him by sending his ambassadors to Egypt that they might give him horses and many people. Will he prosper? Will he who does such things escape? Can he break a covenant and still be delivered? So God now explains the riddle, right? That the understanding of the allegory is kind of here, it it's all makes sense, doesn't it? So the first eagle, you guys, is Nebuchadnezzar himself. It's the king of Babylon. And so the king of Babylon came and he took the top branch. Who did he take? He took Jehoi Jehoiakim and all the princes. Remember? And that's when the first time through Jehoiakim, all the princes, that's when Daniel went. So Daniel went in that time. And so here he was, he takes them all. And then he took seed, and that seed represents the line of so Jehoiakim's child, right, that was put in place. And then Zedekiah at some point gets put in, which we're going to read about that. And he's set up in Judah as a vassal king. He's like, look, you guys, you can stick around. You can stick around. Daniel's gone and all that. They came. They eventually, they get a second group. But now that's where they're at. There's still people there. Remember, we've been talking about that because they were thinking, oh, the people that got taken away were the sinners and the losers, and we're the good people. We're the choice meats, remember? We're the ones that are in the, in the pot. We're protected. We've got these walls around us. You guys remember all that? So that's how they were thinking of themselves. And God's saying here, like, 
you've, this is the way things are going down. This is the way it was supposed to be. The king of Babylon has crippled you, but by no means destroyed you. He's crippled you. He's taken away all of your smart folks. He's taken away all of your mighty people. He's taken away your king, but he set somebody up and said, look, just do what you're told and you're going to be okay. So do you see where he's going with this? This seed that is planted, the vine is a low-growing vine. It's not King David's Israel. It's not Solomon's Israel that's like, ah, you know? We've gone from like Arnold Schwarzenegger to Napoleon Dynamite. Does anybody get that? No? Okay. Grace gets it. Good. Napoleon Dynamite was a scrawny little character on a movie. He was like, like scrawny. And if you guys don't know who Arnold Schwarzenegger is, well then shame on you. You should. You're not American. <laughs> so the fact is, you guys, is that's what's happened to Jerusalem. That's what's happened to, to Judah, right? They've been shrunk down in power. They're not as strong as they once were, not even close. But God's like, man, you are not destroyed either. You're still here. You're still good. You guys, God goes as far as saying like, man, you were planted in fertile soil. You're not a grand plant, but you're growing. The king of Babylon had an agreement with King Zedekiah. Do as you're told, pay your tribute. We're good. And you guys, we see this playing out in different scripture, right? So like flip over with me to 2 Chronicles. It's also in Kings, but let's flip over to 2 Chronicles chapter 36. It would make sense that it would be at the very end of 2 Chronicles because it's the end of Judah, right, for the time being. So it obviously makes sense that it's the last chapter of Chronicles. And so if we flip over to 2 Chronicles chapter 36, starting in verse 5, we're going to see the reigning captivity of Jehoiakim, and then the reigning captivity of Jehoiachin, or kin, whatever you want to say. And then we see Zedekiah taking over. So we're going to start in verse 5. It says this, Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against him and bound him in bronze fetters to carry him off to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also carried off some of the articles of the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his temple at Babylon. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim, the abominations which he did, and what was found against him, indeed, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. Now Jehoiachin, his son, reigned in his place. Jehoiachin was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem three months and ten days. He had a very long reign, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. At the turn of the year, King Nebuchadnezzar summoned him and took him to Babylon with the costly articles from the house of the Lord and made Zedekiah... Jehoiakim's brother, so Jehoiachin's uncle, right? Made Zedekiah, Jehoiakim's brother, king over Judah and Jerusalem. Verse 11, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord his God and did not humble himself before who? Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of of the Lord. And he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear an oath by God, but he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. Moreover, all the leaders of the priests and the people 
transgressed more and more according to all the abominations of the nations and defiled the house of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. So you guys see just a clearer picture, right? We see here that Zedekiah, man, yeah, he made this oath. He said he was going to do things. And we find here, obviously, that he stiffened his neck. And so we're going to keep reading and we're going to talk a little bit more about this, but just, you guys, get your head around the fact that God is going from speaking here, you know, morally, man, you guys are just degraded. You're, you're, you're totally messed up. And now he's looking and saying, even politically, you guys, you're not even people of your word. You're, you say one thing and do another. You, 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 have, you have better than what you sh- deserve, what you should have. And yet you're not happy with it. You're not content. And in all these things, as things get harder and harder for you, you're so stiff-necked, you're not even looking to me. You're not even bending and saying, man, Lord, what is happening to me right now? And so let's keep reading, you guys. Verse 16. This message might be a short one. We'll see. As I live, says the Lord God, Hold on, I want to stop for a second there. As I live. If God says as I live, do you understand? He's eternal. Like, if, if God, our creator God says as I live, I, I, I can't think of words that equal the force of which he's coming with. To me, as I live, if God says as I live is sort of, sort of like our mom or our dad using all of our name, right? It's like whenever he'd be like, Jeremy, Michael, Smiley, Arr! that's kind of what I see God saying, like, as I live, <laughs> woo, right? That's kind of what I see here. So God says, as I live, says the Lord God, surely in this place where the king dwells, who made him king, whose oath he despised, and whose covenant he broke, with him in the midst of Babylon he shall die. Nor will Pharaoh, with his mighty army and great company, do anything in the war. When they heap up a siege mound and build a wall to cut off many persons. Since he despised the oath by breaking the covenant and in fact gave his hand and still did all these things, he shall not escape. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, as I live, surely my oath, which he despised, and my covenant, which he broke, I will recompense on his own head. I will spread my net over him and he shall be taken in my snare. I will bring him to Babylon and try him there for treason, which he has committed against me. All his fugitives with all his troops shall fall by the sword and those who remain shall be scattered to every wind and you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken. You guys, God is telling everyone in advance what Zedekiah is about ready to do. Who was the second eagle? Egypt. Zedekiah went and was like, hey, Pharaoh, I think it was Nico at the time, 
right? And he was like, Pharaoh, help me out, man. Like, send me horses and send me people and like, we'll be good and we'll overthrow Babylon and this will be good. And yeah, we can like, yeah, we can stick it to the man. And Nebuchadnezzar can be, you know, we can say a lot of things about a lot of leaders. We can look at Alexander the Great and say, whoa, the dude was a drunk because he was historically. But you know what else he was? A really good general. Do you understand what I'm getting at? You're an idiot if you go up against them by your own self without God's help. Do you understand? That's where, the, that's where Egypt was. That's where everybody was in this time with Babylon. Babylon was the force to be reckoned with. You were dumb to come up against Babylon. And do you notice here, God never once says, yeah, do that. Not once. As a matter of fact, you guys, Jeremiah this whole time, right? We've, we just read that. Like, man, you're, you're ignoring Jeremiah, this whole time you're ignoring him and when he's saying, man, like, just stop. Just give up. God has got a punishment laid out for you that we have to walk through now because we're too far gone and God will do this. He's going to do this. We saw that in Ezekiel a few chapters ago, didn't we? He's like, hey, we're done. We're done. And yet, here, Zedekiah's like, oh, let me try a back door. Let me do anything I can to find a way to make this work. You guys, 2 Kings 25.7, he gives us the insight of how Zedekiah died. He did die in Babylon. And it was horrible because you know what happened before he died? 2 Kings 25.7, if you guys want to go read that, his sons, first off, he ran out of the king. He ran out, right? They get through the siege wall. And if you guys remember, they were, remember when Ezekiel, when we were reading that Ezekiel was supposed to dig through the wall in Babylon and walk out through it. Remember, they were digging out as much as the Babylonians were digging in because they were like starving and eating children and doing all this crazy stuff. And so they were like, we need out of here. And so the siege was on and all this stuff was happening historically. And so they dug out through the wall and they escaped. And so did Zedekiah. He ran away too, because that's a good leader you know, standing behind your people. So he's there and he runs away and they catch him. And you know what they do? They take his sons in front of him and kill, their son, kill his sons. And then as soon as they're done killing his sons, Nebuchadnezzar walks up and pops his eyes out. Like two little grapes. <laughs> all the guys laughed and all the girls are like, oh! You guys, that's, and then guess what happened after that? He went to Babylon and he died. Not quickly. He spent the rest of his days in a foreign land with no eyesight. And the last vision he saw was his own kids dying. It was horrific. And I want to say something else that we read here. God has a major problem. God obviously had a major problem with Zedekiah breaking an oath that he had made with Babylon. And I think we learned something here, you guys. I don't think it's too far-fetched to believe that our words matter. I don't think it's too far-fetched to look at this and say, man, you know, we need to be people of our word. We need to be a people that whenever we say we're going to do something, we do it. And I'm not talking about, yes, obviously we all have things that come up, right? If you're like, hey man, I'm supposed to do this at the church and I've got COVID or, so, you know, or I'm sick or I sprained my ankle. I mean, I get it. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about if the only reason you don't want to do it is because you woke up that morning and you're a little tired, 
get your behind up and get in here and get it done or whatever that is with whoever that is. And I got to say something, you guys. Here in the church, I think we need to be people of our word, but how much more do we need to be people of our word to people outside in the world who look and say, you're a Christian and I can't rely on you. You're a Christian and I believe you and I trust you about as far as I can throw you. That's a problem. But I've got to say something. I've known a lot of Christians that are like that. That they say like, oh yeah, brother, I'm going to be there. And you're like, maybe. <laughs> and if they show, you're like, sweet. But if they don't, you're like, that's ah, kind of what I expected. And that's sad. And do I think that God looks at it the same way as Zedekiah, that, that you're going to get your eyes popped out and see your kids be killed in front of you? No, I don't think that. Right? But I got to say this. I think also on the other flip side of that is we also don't want to be guilty of using God's grace as a doormat, right. right? And so if God has said, hey, I want you to do this thing and you said, yes, I will do this, be obedient and do it. And trust God for the strength if you're tired and trust God for the words if you've agreed to do something and you're like, why did I agree to that, Lord? What am I doing? I remember, you guys, that I felt called to teach. I felt called to be a pastor. And I was like, okay, cool. And then I get here and I help out Pastor Jim, our founding pastor. And I'm like, okay, cool. I, I think I can do this. I can help build a website. I got that. I got, all right. Yeah, good. And then the first time he was like, hey, man, I need you to teach a Wednesday night. And I was like, <sighs> right? And I, listen, you guys, I had done Bible studies. I had done all these things, but I had never really taught. I guess one time I had taught in a church right? But I had never really done it at the church that I was like a pastor at. Does that make sense? And I was terrified. And I'm like, Lord, what the heck did I sign up for? Why did I say it? And the coolest thing about it, you guys, is that here's what God spoke back to me. It's not you anyway, moron. <laughs> That's how God, God and I, we have a special relationship. <laughs> right? I'm not saying he called me a moron. I'm just saying that's what I heard in my head, that God was just like, I've got this. It's not you anyway. It's me. And I got up and I'm like, oh God. And I mean, I studied the heck out of this. And I get up here and I'm like, yeah. And I go to teach and I don't know if it's good. It probably wasn't, right? But the point I'm making is, is that I do know this. When I walked away, I felt like, man, the Lord said something through this this thick scald man. And that, to be honest, was the most amazing thing I've ever done in my life. And it's why I say I love the privilege that I have of getting up here and teaching. But can I tell you what I was praying down here during worship? Oh God, God, why did you pick me? What the heck am I doing up here? This chapter, Lord, oh geez. I don't even know if I've even got remotely half of what's in this chapter to give to these people because I'm too dumb to know everything about what your word is actually getting at. Do you know what I'm getting at? And I think we all, you guys, the only difference between someone that is willing to be a person of their word and one that isn't is that the person of their word gets to see God move through their lives in a very amazing and special way. And the person that doesn't just misses out over and over and over again. And that's the saddest part to me because I do believe God's grace is sufficient for our lives. And I'm thankful we're not under the old covenant. My poor kids, I mean, I'm really glad we're not under the old covenant, right? But you guys, can I just encourage us, man? Do not be afraid. 
Do not be afraid. And, and also, don't be so naive as to think that the enemy will not attack you on the very day you've said that you were going to do something. And all that week leading up to it, you're like, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. And then the day it comes up and you feel like garbage or you feel super tired or you're like, Lord, like me, most of the time when I get up to teach, Lord, what the heck? Why would you choose me? Because it's common. It's a common thing for all of us to think. Does that apply directly to this? No, because this guy here gave his word like this, you know? He had his, he had his hand crossed or fingers crossed behind his back. He's like, sure, I'm with you, man. Old Nebby, you and me, buddy, we're good. Yeah, woo. And then he's like, no, we're not good at all. I'm gonna get you. I'm gonna stab you in the back the first second I get. That's, that's not what I'm talking about here, but I think it applies in the sense that pe being people of our word matters. It matters. And it should be going, it shouldn't have to even be said that if you're saying something with your fingers crossed behind your back, well then yes, as a Christian, shame on you. Shame on you. I mean, that's, that's kind of obvious, isn't it? I mean, if that's your heart, boy, you got a lot of things you need to repent of. But I think the bigger thing and the more common thing in the church culture today, and I've got to say this, you guys, I think it's something that we've seen in my generation. That's what I think. I'm not saying this is true. This is just me talking. But I think in my generation, we did kind of a poor job of telling our kids, yeah, man, we're going to do that. And then we don't do that. And you know what? I think it's led to this millennial generation that's kind of saying, you know what? We're not going to sign up for anything. We're not going to commit to anything. Why? Because they're so used to people telling them one thing and not doing it. And I guess my encouragement to the millennium, millennial generation is, man, press in. Be people of your word. Commit to things. Don't be afraid to stretch yourself further than what you're comfortable with. And also, I guess I would say, as a person of my generation X, I'm sorry. <laughs> I know I did that to my kids. God was, was getting on me during this time of like the times that I'd say to my kids, like most parents do, you know, yeah, 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 we're going to do that. Yeah, we're going to do that. We're going to do that. And then we don't do it. And so you get kids that are like, I don't trust them. There were times I wasn't a man of my word. I pray that's not true going forward. But I know I had to repent today, even, as the Lord just brought things up in my life. Like, oh God, thank you for your grace. But man, Lord, forgive me for that. Forgive me for how I've influenced my children and the next generation and in the way they look at people and life and leadership because of the way I acted. And so I think it matters and it's important. And I, I gotta say again, people are looking at the church. If you say you're a Christian, people are watching you. And if you are unreliable, if you won't commit to things, if you are just like the world is, then they don't see Jesus in that because Jesus was reliable. And Jesus committed to things that we could never even begin to imagine because no one's asked us to get up on a cross after we've been beaten, beaten within an inch of our lives. Right? God actually goes further in explaining the break in the agreement that Zedekiah had with Nebuchadnezzar. He actually goes as far as saying Zedekiah broke an agreement with him. He broke a covenant with him. And that's huge, you guys. Because when Zedekiah agreed to surrender to Nebuchadnezzar, it was the same in God's eyes as agreeing with God 
that you're going to submit to the punishment that I have for you. That's what God's saying. And remember, it's not like Zedekiah didn't know that. It's not like this is news to Zedekiah. Jeremiah this whole time had been saying, surrender. This is the way this has to go. God has said, this is what needs to happen. And it will go much, much better for you. God was basically throwing them a proverbial bone and saying, you're going to be a low vine, but you're going to stay there. And they, they just wouldn't listen. They wouldn't do it. So what does it mean when we shake hands in agreement on things? Look, I'm not trying to put too fine a point on it, but I think it's very, very important that we follow through on the things we agree to. Verse 22. Thus says the Lord God, I will take also one of the highest branches of the high cedar and set it out. I will crop off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one and will plant it on a high and prominent mountain. On the mountain height of Israel, I will plant it and it will bring forth bows and bear fruit or boughs, I guess, and bear fruit and be a majestic cedar. Be a majestic cedar. Under it will dwell birds of every sort. In the shadow of its branches, they will dwell. And all the trees of the field shall know that I, the Lord, have brought down the high tree and exalted the low tree, dried up the green tree and made the dry tree flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken and have done it. You guys, this last little section is awesome. It is such an encouragement, you guys. Do you understand what we're reading about here? God ends the chapter by telling Israel, by telling the people, he's going to plant a new branch. He is going to, to, to plant a branch and it's going to grow from the top of the cedars. It's going to be a royal branch. That's what we saw before. That's what Nebuchadnezzar came and took. Royalty, right? He took the top branch and then he took the top little part of it, the sun, and planted it, right? Well, here God says, I'm going to take the top of a cedar. And I'm going to take this young little twig and I'm going to plant it on a high mountain, on Mount Zion. And it's going to grow. Jeremiah also prophesied of this new branch. Flip over with me to Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse five says this. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. You guys, you realize this is speaking to something that hasn't even happened yet, right? Israel is not at peace right now. Israel is not prospering in the sense, I mean, they are prospering, but they're not prospering in the sense of absolute peace and no enemies around them. That day is yet to come. And that is what is being spoken of here. And that actually is Jeremiah quoting Isaiah. 
That was what that passage was. So here's Jeremiah, and I'm using Jeremiah instead of Isaiah. Why? Because Isaiah was prophetically saying it. Jeremiah's like, do you guys get that like we're walking into some horrible thing, but this is what Isaiah said was coming. This is what Isaiah said was coming. And here's Ezekiel, God speaking through Ezekiel and saying, God saying, I'm going to plant something that won't be removed ever. He's talking about Jesus. We all know, right? The Messiah was known as the branch of David. Out of the tree of David will come a branch. The branch is the Messiah. It's Jesus. It's such an amazing picture, you guys, of what we already know. But I want you to get your head around here of what Ezekiel's saying. Because he's saying, before it happens, look, Zedekiah, you're done, buddy. Like God has just played a riddle to you that you don't know. You're dead. That's a fact. You're dead. And, and God even go as far as to say, like, you've lost the game in case you still don't get it, Zedekiah. And not only that, you're going to die in Babylon, the place you are trying your best to avoid getting to. Like, you're going to go there anyway, because guess what? No human is in charge. God is. God is in charge. You guys, Jesus brought about salvation to the whole world, didn't he? Do you guys get that that's what he's saying here in verse 23? On the mountain heights of Israel, I will plant it and it will bring forth boughs and bear fruit and be a majestic cedar. And I want to stop and think about that. Here's God saying, you little vine wanted to be a majestic vine and I set you up. Under Babylon, yes, you were lowly. Yes, you were just growing across the ground. But you were planting, you know, growing out new branches and things were spreading out. You were doing good and you were low right now, but you had the opportunity to be a majestic vine and you chose not to be. You chose to grow clear across the desert to try to get Egypt to come and help you. And so then now you're squashed because Babylon just pulled you up by its roots, right? But what's he say here? When I plant my twig, it's not going to become a vine. It's going to be a mighty cedar. Do you guys see that in this one chapter, we've come full circle? We've come full circle. He's using this analogy to say like, man, like you guys, this allegory. He's like, you guys are just trying to be a mighty vine, which you never can be. So you're going to be ripped up by the roots. But when I come, when I plant, when I do the things that I'm going to do, it's going to grow into a mighty cedar and we are right back where we started. But under this cedar, you guys, it says birds of every sort. You know who that's talking about? Us. We're the birds of every sort. Isn't that awesome? It's just so cool to see God this far in advance sovereignly saying, Look, right now, I'm giving you a pow-pow, and you will submit to this. You don't have a choice. It's going to happen. But it's not the end for you. I love you. And not only do I love you, but, like, the whole world is going to be blessed because of the people of Israel. And we are. We are blessed. We are blessed, you guys, in spite of them <laughs> because God loves us so much. And God loves them so much that he uses them in spite of themselves to be a blessing to the world. And I, I, 
I got to get our heads around that for a second because, you know, the truth is, you guys, you realize Christians are a huge part of the financial, like, kind of independence of Israel. You realize that, right? Like we go over there and we, we look at all the things that Jesus did and the tourists, tourism's huge and all of that. It's a big part of their GDP. Not all of it, of course, but I'm saying like it's a chunk and it all comes from what? Those birds that are under the, the boughs of the cedar, Jesus. It's awesome. They're being blessed even in spite, again, of themselves. You guys, I love verse 24. It says, all the trees of the field shall know that I, the Lord, have brought down the high tree and exalted the low tree. And you guys, I, I'm not trying to like overanalyze or take this as any deeper than what God wants us to, but can I just say something to you? The more the church is persecuted, by a high tree that thinks pretty highly of itself, the more it flourishes and grows, right? We see it all, the, all over the world. Where's the fastest growing Christian church in all the world? Iran. Number two is China. You guys, we see this all over the place and, and it just shows God's sovereignty that when he makes a statement, it's absolutely true. And so we can know that the Lord has planted us we can know that God planted Jesus to take care of things for us, to forgive us of our sins. And all we have to do is repent and take on his burden, which is light, and give him, like was said, like Dan said, our big old bag of rocks that we're carrying around all the time that are heavy, right? And we can trust you guys that no matter what it looks like in our workplace, no matter what it looks like when you feel like the Lord tells you, go out and witness, man, it doesn't matter if you walk away feeling like a total idiot because the person somehow you know, has all this degrees and has all this education. I've had that happen to me before. But you know what the coolest part about that is? Is that I know that God uses the foolish things to confound the wise. And I'm okay with being a foolish thing. I really am. I hope you are too. Because I read this and I think... If we wanted to replace that analogy, right? That high tree and the low tree, I'm okay with being the low tree, the foolish thing, because that's the one that God's exalting. That's the one that God is using. It's the one with all the education that thinks they're way up here that God's like, I will bring you down. And Lord willing, for his own sake or her own sake, she comes to know Jesus and humbles herself or he humbles himself before they die. But if not, you guys, they will be humbled. They will be brought low. One way or the other, God will take care of it. And so we have nothing to be concerned about. We only can look and say, praise you, Jesus. Praise you, Jesus, that this green tree, this world, this government, this, this entity, this thing that's coming against the church that says, we're the boss, we've got the power, we've got it all on our side, and you will submit, dry tree, that God says no. You do as, I, do as I say. Don't go crazy. Don't be like Zedekiah and get ahead of God and be like, oh, we're going to go on the back door and figure it. No, no. Right? God's word says, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Follow the laws of the land. Live at peace as much as we can. But at the same time, you guys, and I feel like I'm supposed to say this because I don't know what holds for America in the future. 
But I do know this. God's word has been around a whole lot longer than our country, and it will not change. And so what I do know is that, man, if we get really, really, really dry because things get really, really, really crazy, like they already are in so much of the world, I still know that right here is all the water I need. That right here is all that I need to live my life until God says, this is your final breath. And then guess what, you guys? We get to go home. We cannot lose. We cannot lose. Amen? Let's pray. Thanks so much for listening to this message from Great Bay Calvary Church in Dover, New Hampshire. We're so glad you found us. If you want to learn more about our services or need prayer for something going on in your life, come connect with us at greatbaycalvary.com.